In the Pew Bibles, it's page 398. It was advertised this morning as covering the first two chapters. What a joke. Uh, We'll be lucky if we reach the end of the first chapter, but we'll set the scene. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. The book of Nehemiah is, it begins with Jerusalem having been destroyed by the Babylonians, and uh, then later Nehemiah comes to lead the rebuilding of the city and indeed of society in that city. So let's just do a, a quick historical uh, timeline of the, uh, where Nehemiah fits in. If you want a picture of the Old Testament, uh, two key root anchor points. Abraham was about 2000 BC, and then King David was uh, about two, uh, 1000 BC. David's grandson, King Rehoboam was so unwise that it led to the kingdom being partitioned, a bit like Ireland, the north and south, except that the north of Israel was the larger part, and Jerusalem was in the southern part, and that's where the descendants of David continued to reign. Eventually, Israel or Judah became so corrupt that God sent them into exile. The Babylonians came. They pulled down the walls of Jerusalem. They destroyed all the houses, just pulled them down completely. 
and the people were taken into Babylon in Iraq. And for about 70 years, that's where they lived. But then God arranged for them to be brought back, for some of them anyway, to return. And we get the period in Scripture which is sometimes called the return or the restoration after the exile. Now, let's zoom into that period. It is uh, important for our discussions this morning. It started going back about to 586 BC was when Jerusalem was finally destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, because they were BC, as we move forward in time, the numbers get smaller. So, after uh, Nebuchadnezzar pulled down the walls of Jerusalem and destroyed the entire city, the Babylonians were then taken over by the Persian Empire, and the Persians allowed those Jews that wanted to go back and to rebuild the temples. So about 50 years after the final destruction of Jerusalem, there was their return. It took 21 years for the temple to be rebuilt. So a total of 70 years from the return to the completion of the temple. Then there was a long period of 58 years, and then the Bible tells us of a man called Ezra, who was a teacher of the Word of God. And he came in 458 BC, and about 13 years after him, uh, Nehemiah, that we've just read about, he comes to Jerusalem to head up the building, rebuilding of the city. So, to think of it uh, in simpler terms, from the, the, the year that Jerusalem was utterly destroyed until the temple was completed was 70 years, and then another 70 years until Nehemiah arrives. Now, most of us are fortunate in that many of us have never seen a city that is destroyed. But Jerusalem really was destroyed. The Babylonians came, they pulled down the walls, they pulled down the temple, even the houses with ropes, they just pulled down all the stones and they utterly destroyed the temple. Uh, sorry, the temple and the city itself. As I say, we've probably never seen that. One or two of the older folks here who lived through the Second World War might have seen how the center of Belfast was flattened and uh, parts of North Belfast were flattened during the Second World War. But if, if you really want to see what a destroyed city was like, then we would really have to go to Germany at the end of the Second World War. Germany suffered terribly during the Second World War. Their cities were flattened by the Allies. So let me just show you a picture of Berlin, uh, a few pictures of Berlin in 1945 at the end of the Second World War. You may not be able to see the details, but there's just the shells of building. Acre after acre of the city was nothing but rubble and burned out and bomb buildings. If you, in the top right picture, just I'll point out one little detail for later. You'll see there's a, you might be able to see there's a very, the remains of a very large church there. It was the Kaiser Wilhelm uh, Church there in the center of Berlin. And in among the ruins of the city, there were children playing. People gathered up their belongings. But before too long, the people started rebuilding. They cleared away, started to clear away the rubble. 
And Berlin, particularly with massive help from the Allies, particularly from America, but also the UK, the people uh, were led in the rebuilding of Berlin. So that was Berlin, 1945. Let me show you 15 years later a picture of Berlin in 1960. You notice that same church in the background. It's still, it's been left as a ruin. It's still there today. You can go and see that. But apart from that, it seems almost that the city has been rebuilt. Normal life is being restored. And the, there's obviously a huge amount of effort to go from a city utterly in ruins to a city that was becoming prosperous again. And just notice the time scale. 15 years. When Nehemiah came back, do you remember how long it was after Jerusalem had been destroyed? 140 years. And when Nehemiah got the report of what Jerusalem was like, it was just as destroyed as it had been 140 years previously. The temple had been rebuilt, yes, but no one had rebuilt the walls. No one had even rebuilt the houses. It was still a mass of rubble after 140 years. So after 140 years, the city was still in ruins. Some people, or most people probably lived outside the city. Some maybe lived among the ruins. There were a few houses for the priests because the temple was functioning and so the priests, some of the top priests had to live close by. So a few of the houses in the priest, priestly area had been rebuilt. But the city had no walls and no gates. Now, what did that mean for the people? Walls were important. It's interesting in the, as in the text that we read what the absence of walls meant. Nehemiah records that the people were in disgrace or shame. It wasn't so much that they were in danger, but they were in great trouble and shame because they had no identity. In those days, a city that had walls really was something, it was almost like a city-state. People living in that were able to say, I come from Jerusalem, I come from Londonderry or whatever. A city that has walls has identity. You're either in or you're out. It had a security. You were a citizen of a city. But if it had no walls, you weren't a citizen. You couldn't be a citizen. And because it had no walls, they were wide open to all sorts of influence and control from the outside. Some people really liked to have an identity in life. They liked to be part of something big, uh, particularly if you come from a church like ours and people say, well, what sort of a church are you? And you say, well, we're just a New Testament church. People haven't a clue. They like to have a name. Well, are you Presbyterian? Are you Anglican? Are you Baptist? Give us something that we can understand. And sometimes we feel a little small and insignificant when we say, well, we actually resist any uh, efforts to build an ecclesiastical system. And that's one of the issues that sometimes Christians find difficult to bear. And it's one of the temptations is to build an ecclesiastical system to give ourselves some identity in the eyes of people outside. Nehemiah, when he heard the reports 
of what had happened to Jerusalem and how it was still without any walls or gates, he felt the shame that the people living there must feel. Not being able to hold their heads up when people asked them, where are you from? And why, after 140 years, had nothing happened? Well, even just that simple fact shows two key problems uh, with the people in Israel. First of all, the people seem to have had no spirit or vision to do anything about it. They just lived among the rubble. They just learned to cope with the mess and with the disaster. And why was that? I mean, they had the temple. There were religious people there. But sometimes religious people have no vision. They just cope with whatever sort of mess or disaster we happen to have. Perhaps we say, well, it's just the last days. You can't expect anything else for that. But one of the great, even greater problems was that there was no positive leadership in Jerusalem. So the people's spirit had been crushed. They looked back to the glory days when Jerusalem was a key city in the Middle East. But now they had lost all that. All they had was their memories of the past. But nobody had any energy or drive to rebuild, to do anything about it. And that's what Nehemiah was sent to do. He didn't do the physical rebuilding, but he was sent to uh, motivate, to provide real leadership so that Jerusalem could be rebuilt. Not just the physical rebuilding of the walls and the gates and the houses, but the society. Because there was no structure in society, the people were hopeless, without any hope or sense of purpose. And Nehemiah was sent to rebuild their purpose for living in that particular part of the world. Many of us have had very fortunate lives and sheltered lives. But there are some people, perhaps even one or two people here, and when you see a city like that, that used to be big and strong, but is now in ruins, there's some people who see that, a picture like that, and say or feel, that's a picture of my life. There are some people whose lives have been destroyed, perhaps by others. Perhaps when they were younger, their lives were destroyed. Perhaps something has come into their life. Circumstances have come in. Uh, perhaps health issues that have just destroyed all purpose, a sense of purpose in life, and all the earlier hopes just can't be fulfilled. Perhaps somebody who may, has made bad choices in their life. They've maybe just rebelled, just mildly rebelled against their parents, but get drawn into something, into a lifestyle that has just utterly destroyed all their potential. And one of the things that gets destroyed in a person like that, whose life has been destroyed, is the will to do anything about it. You just find that although they maybe aspire to get their life back, to realize their potential, what it takes to do something about it has been destroyed as well. There's no inner leadership, no inner drive or spirit. If that's a picture of your life, what you need is someone from the outside to come in, to lead the process of rebuilding, to drive that process, to give you a new spirit, a spirit of hope, and who will work in your life. 
Nehemiah couldn't really do that. He tried to do that. But Jesus came to do that. That's what Jesus came to do, to take people's lives who were broken, and he met many of those. He has met many of those even uh, uh, here today and has come in and provided a new spirit so that people don't simply wallow in the past, don't simply live amongst the ruins of their lives, but find that through Jesus their lives can be rebuilt, reconstructed with a new hope. There are other people who, when we see a picture like that of something that used to be grand, in the context of Christianity, we look at Christianity in Europe or Christendom in Europe, and we see uh, Christendom in ruins across Europe, having once been established through the Reformation and the centuries after that, established on the Word of God, rediscovering the truth uh, of God, but through a process of compromise, of wanting to be accepted by society, throwing uh, one aspect of Scripture out after the other, we now see a church that is not recognizable as a Christian church in many countries. And how we long to see a strong church in Europe rebuilt and reconstructed. Only the Lord Jesus can do that. But Nehemiah may well be a picture of how that could happen. Now, Nehemiah had been living in Persia. He himself hadn't been born whenever Jerusalem was destroyed. His, perhaps his grandparents or great-grandparents may have been exiled uh, from that and taken into Babylon and then becoming part of Persia. So he was a young man, quite a prominent man, in a very trusted position uh, before the king of Persia. And he, he doesn't even seem to have known what had happened to Jerusalem. There were no newspapers, no internet, no television. He didn't seem to know what state Jerusalem was in. Some of the exiles had gone back after uh, 50 years uh, with Zerubbabel, rebuilt the temple. Others had gone back shortly before, earlier in Nehemiah's life with Ezra. But Nehemiah hadn't heard what the state. Perhaps he thought everything's going well. But when his brother, presumably his brother had gone back with Ezra, but Nehemiah hadn't. When his brother came from Judah with some other uh, Jews and told Nehemiah the state of Jerusalem, Nehemiah says he just broke down. For some reason, Nehemiah, more than others, felt the shame. He felt just how terrible it was that a city like Jerusalem, that had such a place in God's plans, should be in ruins. He felt, this is not right, but it broke his heart, and he wept, and he fasted, and he prayed for many days. Now, notice what he prayed at the center of his prayer. He said, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you, speaking to God. Now, that's a very interesting prayer. He could have prayed, Lord, punish the Babylonians who did this. It's all their fault. It's all our enemies that are to blame. Lord, punish them. From an historical point of view, Nehemiah could have said he could have blamed everybody except his own people. But 
because he had read the prophets in the Old Testament, he realized that those enemies that had destroyed the city were in only God's ways of speaking to his people and allowing them to suffer the consequence of their idolatry, of their turning away from God. And so Nehemiah knew from the Bible what God's analysis, God's diagnosis of the problem was. It wasn't the fault of the Babylonians, even though they pulled it down. The real cause Nehemiah accepted was that Israel had turned away from God. They had turned away from the Bible. They knew they should obey God and be true and faithful to God, but they were much more interested in being accepted by their neighbors, in being thought of as cool and powerful and strong and clever, instead of being this minority nation that uniquely worshipped one true God. And so Nehemiah, as he looks back at his nation's history, he accepts the Bible's interpretation of the trouble that he saw Jerusalem was in. He mentions even his own family. There have been several times opportunities for his family to have returned to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, but they hadn't gone back. Under Ezra, Nehemiah maybe could have gone back, but he chose to stay and have a good job in the Persian Empire there. And so he says, I confess the sins not only of the Israelites, but myself and my father's family. And he accepted the Bible's explanation of the situation that was causing him such grief. And he uses that word sin. I confess the sins we have committed. I know when people's lives are destroyed, often there are, it is other people who are responsible for that. But the, continual, the persistence in simply accepting that and knowing that we're helpless in a situation like that and yet not turning to God for help, not accepting outside leadership from outside our own lives, indeed outside this world. We see maybe other people's lives who have been turned around and yet there can be something inside people that resists the call of God to open their lives to him. That would be one of the sins that Nehemiah might be a picture of. And the first step in restoration of our lives is when we accept the Bible's explanation of our problems and accept our share of the responsibility. I appreciate that many people's lives were destroyed before they had any opportunity to do anything about that. The Bible, and God in particular, is more sensitive to that and more brokenhearted by that situation than anyone on earth. But nevertheless, he calls on people like that and uses the picture of this book of Nehemiah to invite people to open up their lives to receive the leadership of the Lord Jesus. And he said, God calls us, New Testament calls us, whatever shape, uh, shape our lives are in, whatever state they're in, not simply to live constantly blaming other people, making excuses for why we can't do anything about it, but to take that step of accepting the leadership of the Lord Jesus as Lord in our lives. And the chapter that we read ends with just a little statement, almost out of the blue. Nehemiah, he said, I was the king's cupbearer. 
Nehemiah was a trusted man who risked his life every day. Uh, The fear of the king was of assassination by poisoning. And so Nehemiah tasted the king's food and the cup before the king was given it. So Nehemiah would have made sure that if there were any plots to assassinate the king, he found out about it before he tasted the food. In that sense, he was probably head of security, head of MI6 uh, for the Persian Empire, not just simply handing the cup to the king. And that uh, understanding of intelligence and of enemies and plots was going to stand him in good stead when he came to Jerusalem as governor with full authority. So I just want to end by asking this question. How should we interpret the book of Nehemiah? The reason I ask that is there is no mention in the New Testament of Nehemiah, as far as I know. If you find one, please let me know quietly afterwards. But I can't find any. But there is one book that does talk about a city with walls and gates, Jerusalem's walls and gates. Can you think what it was? If you've been here for the last few weeks, uh, you have no excuse for not knowing which book we're talking about. We're talking about Revelation. At the end of Revelation, it's heaven, we see heaven coming to earth. And how is, if you like, the church pictured? It's pictured as a city. It's called the New Jerusalem. It is being built even now as we speak. Uh, it's got walls and gates. It speaks of those walls made out of precious stones. It speaks of the streets made of gold. And the description of that city is one that is beautiful. But it is in heaven. In Hebrews, we read about that same city. It exists even now. It says that people like Abraham, who were called out of an idolatrous society, who wanted, who were searching for God, they were searching for a city. That's what it says about Abraham. He was searching for a city that God was building. And he never found it here on earth. And the writer to the Hebrews says, that's because what the longing that was in his heart for a city, for the security and identity of that, the city is in heaven. And that's what God is building for people who are seeking their identity from God. And that heavenly city, Jerusalem, exists and is being built now. Christians are citizens of this heavenly city. It's fine to call yourself a Presbyterian, a Baptist, an Anglican, a brethren, or whatever, but that is not our identity as a Christian. If you want to be some part of something big, understand that if you're a Christian, you are a citizen of the greatest city in all creation, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, which even now exists. Abraham is a citizen of that and is there right now. All those people who trusted God in the Old Testament are there. There's thousands and myriads of angels in joyful assembly in that city now. It is a happy community. That is where we belong. So our identity and security is not on this earth, not by building a big church, not by having impact on society, being recognized by society. I just want to mention one last point as we draw close to a close, that we should not try to build this city, New Jerusalem, on earth. 
Nehemiah was trying to do that, to try to build God's ideal city on earth. But when we get to the last chapter, as we'll see at the end of July, Nehemiah ends up resorting to physical violence. He tries, he wants people to behave right. They won't do it, so he beats them, he pulls out their hair. If you try to build a perfect society on earth, if you try to build a city as others have done on earth, where, and have laws for Christian laws, you will end up resorting to violence. Calvin, John Calvin, one of the great reformers, tried to set up Geneva as a model city, as a city of God on earth. He ended up having one of his theological enemies burned to death at the, on the stake. That's what happens when you try to build a Christian city on earth and try to run it, particularly from the Old Testament principles. Oliver Cromwell and the people of his time tried to do the same. They wanted to establish a Christian society here in England. They ended up cutting the head of the King of England. It led to civil war, and uh, it was driven often by this idea that we should establish a Christian utopian society here on earth. That is what Nehemiah tried to do. And in that sense, the Old Testament does not have the answer. It has the right aspirations, but does not have the answer. The ultimate answer comes with Christ, who opened up, uh, revealed to us the concept of this new heavenly city, made us citizens of heaven. So just to give you a little foretaste of what we might come across in the weeks ahead and starting tonight. In some ways, Nehemiah is a picture of Christ. An imperfect picture, but nevertheless, a picture of someone sent by God to people whose lives are in ruins to provide that leadership if we submit to his leadership to reconstruct and rebuild something wonderful for God. It starts when we acknowledge our sin and surrender the leadership of our lives to the Lord Jesus. That's when he can begin the work of reconstruction in us. He is also leading the grand project to build the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, I will build my church, not just here on earth, but as a cosmic uh, established city. What Nehemiah does, though, he reveals a lot of the sources of opposition both opposition from the outside and opposition from the inside. And tonight we may meet some of that uh, when David speaks to us. But also as he discovers, as he tries to rebuild a community based on God's word, he discovers many of the deeper issues and exposes those uh, as he tries to get people to live by God's word. So as I mentioned, Nehemiah was a picture, but he was limited in the same way that the Old Testament is limited, and it's only in Jesus Christ that we see the perfect fulfillment of God's plans.